Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the Trump. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 3rd. Today, how the Mueller investigation led President Trump to Ukraine, the end of Kamala Harris's 2020 campaign, and China's robot revolution. Many Republicans would have you believe that the Ukraine investigation is a whole new thing, a new thing that the Democrats have come up with now that the Mueller investigation failed. Public hearings are the culmination of three years of incessant Democrat efforts to find a crime to impeach the president. Mueller spent two years and millions of taxpayer dollars seeking evidence of a crime that we know wasn't committed. Mueller's failure failure was a devastating blow to Democrats who clearly hoped his work to be the basis for the removal of the president. And I think a lot of members of the public might think there are two separate things, too, that, you know, this is a president who's been played by scandal, that he had the Mueller uh, investigation, and now that that's over, we have something new. But the reality is they're really all the same thing. I'm Rosalind Helderman. I'm an investigative reporter for the National Political Staff. What we're seeing now with Ukraine grew organically and seamlessly out of the Mueller investigation. And you don't have to trust me. The person who really says this most loudly is Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani joins us by phone for the program today. The president's personal attorney. Mr. Giuliani, how are you, sir? I'm really good, Glenn. How are you? I'm good. I'm good who has spent quite a lot of his very frequent media appearances talking about how he started working on Ukraine because he saw it as a way to defend President Trump against the Mueller investigation. So I knew they were hot and heavy on this Russian collusion thing, even though I knew 100 percent it was false. So Rudy Giuliani has actually said this publicly? Yeah, repeatedly. He talks all about how uh, he started meeting with these prosecutors, not to try to help President Trump's 2020 reelection effort, which gets a lot of discussion these days, but as a defense attorney trying to defend Trump against Mueller. I said to myself, hallelujah, I now have what a defense lawyer always wants. I can go prove somebody else committed this crime. He talks about how he first got wind of this Ukraine idea in November of 2018 and how that was, in his words, a very important moment for the Mueller investigation. You know, you had to kind of put yourself back in the mindset of a year ago. At that time, no one knew what Mueller was going to find. He was about to indict Roger Stone. He had Paul Manafort cooperating, uh, and he was really pressing him to explain why he was interacting with Russians during the campaign. And Rudy Giuliani said, that he came up with this legal defense. Hallelujah, he says. I can prove someone else did it. And the someone else is the Ukrainians, and the did it is interfering in the 2016 election. So when I got this evidence about Ukrainian collusion, in which they mentioned that Joe Biden was involved in developing some of the collusion, I jumped on it. 
And I started to find people in Ukraine that were willing to come over and to talk to me about it. How, in the middle of the Russia investigation, did Giuliani come up with this idea specifically about Ukraine, that it wasn't Russia that was interfering in the election, that it was actually Ukrainians? Well, Giuliani has said that he was approached by an investigator in November 2018 who proposed this idea that it all was coming out of Ukraine, that people in Ukraine were trying to set up Paul Manafort uh, in 2016 when they uh, started talking about what he'd been doing as a political consultant in that country. And that's why Paul Manafort ultimately was fired from the Trump campaign. And then there are these sort of offshoots, including this theory that uh, – President Trump actually said on the telephone to the Ukrainian president in July about CrowdStrike, the company that was hired by the Democratic National Committee to look into the hack, which was the first company that said that they believed that Russian operatives were behind it. The CrowdStrike thing, we hear it coming up over and over again during impeachment hearings. We've heard the president talk about it. And honestly, I still remain confused as to what the CrowdStrike conspiracy theory is all about. Well, it's really confusing because it's so uh, uh, not based in fact. It's very interesting. They have the server, right, from the DNC, Democratic National Committee. Who has the server? Now, the FBI went in and they told him, get out of here. You're not kidding. We're not giving it to you. They gave the server to CrowdStrike or whatever it's called, which is a country, which is a company owned by a very wealthy Ukrainian. So let me first tell you, like, what CrowdStrike actually is. Uh, it's an American company. It was founded by a guy who was born in Russia and another guy who was born in the U.S. And it was hired by the Democratic National Committee in the spring of 2016 when they suspected that their servers had been hacked to look into what had gone on. So it's kind of like a cybersecurity it's firm. It's a cybersecurity firm, exactly. And it was the first company that, uh, based on its forensic analysis, came out with uh, – uh, the finding that they believed that the DNC had been hacked by Russian operatives. Uh, their work has been fully reviewed by the U.S. government. That is also the finding of the U.S. government. Uh, the Democratic Party servers were hacked by Russian operatives. There are 12 Russian military intelligence officers who have been indicted uh, for actually participating in that hack. That's what our government has said happened. The conspiracy theory is that somehow CrowdStrike is actually a Ukrainian company, that the guy who was born in Russia was actually born in Ukraine, that all the analysis they did was somehow faked and was intended to, like, frame Russia for what Ukraine had actually done, and that they actually sent the server itself, uh, the Democratic Party server, to Ukraine so that somewhere it's still there and could be recovered and would prove that Russia didn't hack the DNC? And I still want to see that server. You know, the FBI has never gotten that server. That's a big part of this whole thing. Why did they give it to a Ukrainian company? Why? Are you sure they did that? Are you sure they gave it to Ukraine? Well, that's what the word is. This is ridiculous. It is just ridiculous. And in fact, the president, um, we know, uh, was told by his own staff that it was ridiculous. At this point, I am deeply frustrated with what he and the legal team is doing and repeating that debunked theory to the president. Tom Bossert, the former Homeland Security advisor, has said in interviews that it's completely debunked and that it was frustrating to him as an official because it sticks in his mind when he hears it over and over again. And for clarity here, George, let me just again repeat that it has no validity. 
And that in the heat of the Russia investigation, Rudy Giuliani turns to this and he's like, aha, this is the thing that we should be paying attention to. This and other variations of the sort of theory that Ukraine in some way interfered, that they tried to take down Paul Manafort to hurt Donald Trump, that people in the Ukrainian embassy in Washington fed information about Paul Manafort to the DNC. There's various versions of this, but when you get to the heart of it, it always comes down to sort of a defense through distraction. The idea is that you know, you think that Russia interfered to help Trump. Actually, it was Russia's foe, Ukraine, and they interfered to help Hillary. And through this process, this is how Giuliani comes to believe that it's not just the CrowdStrike conspiracy theory that is worth being looked at more, but also general corruption in Ukraine and Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son and his involvement in a Ukrainian energy company. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, there's general dirtiness there and the dirtiness involves Ukraine and it involves Democrats and that that's what we should really be talking about. And if the Democrats weren't obsessed with trying to take down Trump through Russia, that is what we would be talking about. So from what you found about how people responded to the Mueller investigation, what do you think that tells us going forward? So the current impeachment inquiry is rooted and grew out of Mueller. There's also really striking sort of parallels. You can see Donald Trump running the same game plan against Congress as he did against Mueller. So, you know, I think he learned a lesson during the Mueller investigation where he cooperated things actually went badly for him. He allowed White House staff to be interviewed by Mueller. He turned over 20,000 pages of internal White House documents to Mueller. And that formed the core of sort of the most politically damaging portion of the report, the whole obstruction investigation. Mueller said that he would not come to a traditional prosecutorial recommendation, but he said he could not exonerate the president of obstruction of justice. And everything he laid out that buttressed that damaging line came from from cooperation from the White House, where President Trump did not cooperate. For instance, he refused himself to sit for an interview. He faced no consequence for that, and things went better for him. And I think that the lesson he learned is that you can wait these things out. Do not participate. Undermine them publicly. Undermine them with your base. And Ultimately, your opponent will have to sort of leave the field, will sort of give up. I I think that is the lesson he learned from Mueller, and he's employing it now with the impeachment inquiry where he's not allowing his staff to testify at all. He's not turning over any documents. So really what you're saying is that even though a lot of people think of the Russian investigation and the Ukraine investigation is two separate things, just like there was one chapter and then that first chapter closed and now we're on to this completely different second chapter, that there really are a lot of lessons that can be learned from the Mueller report, even if it wasn't something that ultimately resulted in the impeachment of the president. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things you can see in the Mueller report, especially in the second volume of the Mueller report that outlines how President Trump acted in office, is this really dramatic kind of narrative about what 
President Trump is like in office and particularly what he's like when he is faced with a difficult situation or stress or pressure. There's been a lot of sort of argument over Mueller's legal findings. But if you put that aside, it's just an incredible story that's told in the words of the people who worked in the White House who all went before Mueller and testified. So we've actually been working on a project at The Washington Post to kind of retell that story in a way that more people might understand. And it's a a graphic nonfiction is what it's called, uh, basically like a graphic novel of the second volume of the Mueller report. So that's coming out today in both book form and also in a digital project available online. And so this is theoretically not just 300 pages of wall-to-wall text, but something that is actually a little easier to process in terms of what actually went down. Exactly. It's a pretty vivid retelling. It's got pictures. I mean, it's all pictures. It's like a graphic novel. Uh, But it's very rooted in the report itself. We fact-checked it extremely rigorously. Uh, So it is the story of the first sort of two years of the Trump White House as told by the people who worked for him and spoke under oath to uh, Bob Mueller and his prosecutors. Ross, I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Roz Helderman is a political investigations reporter with The Post. You can find a link to the digital version of the Mueller Report Illustrated at postreports.com. The paperback edition is available to order online and in bookstores nationwide. On Tuesday afternoon, the House Intelligence Committee released their report on the impeachment inquiry. They wrote that they, quote, were struck by the fact that the president's misconduct was not an isolated occurrence, nor was it the product of a naive president. They went on to say that President Trump, quote, engaged in an unprecedented campaign of obstruction of this impeachment inquiry. The committee will vote Tuesday evening to forward the report to the House Judiciary Committee, which holds its first impeachment hearing on Wednesday. So what is the news of this afternoon? The news this afternoon is Senator Kamala Harris has suspended her campaign to be president of the United States. Eugene Scott is a reporter for The Fix. I've taken stock and I've looked at this from every angle. And over the last few days, I have come to one of the hardest decisions of my life. I was very surprised. I know that she has had a difficult time getting in the top tier. My campaign for president simply does not have the financial resources to continue. But when you look at the field, she is not the person you would guess first to suspend next. But that's what happened. So what has she said about why she is choosing to suspend her campaign? She has primarily said that fundraising was a major issue for her. I'm not a billionaire. I can't fund my own campaign. And as the campaign has gone on, it has become harder and harder to raise the money we need to compete. She was supposed to have an event uh, in New York today that she was not able to go forward with. She, in fact, had to cancel. And she has cited that that's been a consistent problem for her. Previously, she noted that she couldn't even get on the air in Iowa because of how expensive it was to buy ad time. And that definitely affected her ability uh, to get her message out. But while that's partially true, I mean, she hasn't been able to fundraise as much as other candidates like Senator Warren or Senator Sanders. She has also fundraised a lot more than many other candidates that continue to be in the race. 
She did have a lot of money, so much so that she was able to qualify for the December debate. And that's not the case for everyone. And so it's very possible that other candidates who had less money than she did could find themselves dropping out of the race soon as well. I also wonder if there are other reasons why she's choosing to drop out now. There's been a lot of media coverage over the past couple days and weeks about the state of her campaign internally, the fact that there has been a lot of internal strife about what the path forward is and some feelings of people not being confident in her campaign leadership. She has had a difficult time gaining momentum and getting the support she needs to get into the top tier. And following reports that even her own aides and staff, many of them seem not to have the confidence in the campaign, could be really demoralizing uh, for an organization and make it even more difficult to get voters to believe in your candidacy. And do you think that there is somewhat of a bigger strategy here as well, that if she were considering the possibility of being somebody's running mate or wanting to be a top-level cabinet member, that she may not want to continue in this race where she's going to keep losing and maybe look pretty bad or have these not-so-flattering depictions of her continue to come out. That's always a possibility. Very early after Kamala Harris announced her candidacy, there was conversation about her being a great number two pick to someone like Joe Biden. She, of course, was very clear that she was running for the nomination not to be anyone's number two. But it's become increasingly clear that she was not going to get the nomination. And to convince people that she would be a good number two, she may have concluded that the best thing to do was to take herself out of the campaign right now when so many people are questioning her leadership skills and her ability to win. And where do you think that this leaves Harris supporters, especially given the fact that she was one of the few remaining top-tier people of color in the race and her departure makes the fields a lot wider? We know that Twitter isn't scientific, but before we started recording this podcast, I went to Twitter to ask, where do Harris supporters go? And the responses were wide, from official surrogates to voters. And we heard everything, everything from Biden and Buttigieg and Warren. As you noted, there is an absence or a decreasing presence of diversity and relative youth among the field, despite the fact that the left is increasingly diverse and young. And I think maybe that the confusion about where her supporters will go speaks to the fact that she has always kind of struggled to figure out where she fits in among this field. Like, is she one of the ultra liberal? Is she one of the more moderate members of the field? It seemed like she was often grappling for what was the right identity to be playing up on the presidential stage. That was a real challenge for Harris. She did not fit neatly into boxes that we often talk about when doing political analysis, the boxes regarding whether you're a progressive or you're a moderate. And for voters genuinely concerned about policy, that made things very confusing. And it was very difficult to determine if you thought uh, she would be the best person to beat Trump. Also, her narrative, I think, was very difficult for a lot of people to grasp and understand She initially ran as a successor to the Obama legacy. She's a biracial candidate with an unfamiliar name, 
legal background, senator, just all of these things that I think drew people to President Obama. But it just did not have the same appeal. And that could be for a lot of reasons. It could be because there were, quite frankly, some differences, some major differences. One thing I don't think people think about a lot when they focus on what drew voters to Obama is Michelle, Malia, and Sasha, something that none of these candidates who believe they're the heir to the Obama legacy have. And I think another challenge was that what was attractive about Obama in 08 to a lot of voters is irrelevant in 2020 as they look to someone to replace Donald Trump. So what do you think Kamala Harris's decision to quit this race says about what it takes to stay in? Money continues to be a major factor in whether someone is able to get to the top of the field in national politics. And we see that in some polls that have shown Michael Bloomberg getting more support than some candidates who've been running for a year or close to it. And Harris just wasn't able to get the funds needed to convince Americans that she would be the best person. So at the end of the day, money still matters. It does still matter. And as much as the Trump campaign likes to tout that in 2016, they raise far less money than Hillary Clinton. They have a lot of money right now, and that is being put to use, and they know they will have to use it if they want to keep the Oval Office. Eugene, thank you so much. Thank you. Eugene Scott is a reporter for The Fix. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. On July 25th, 2019, during a phone call with a foreign leader, Trump asked for a favor to investigate a political rival. Trump's call set off a cascade of events leading to the current impeachment proceedings. In season two, The Asset shows how all roads lead to Russia and dissects how Trump tried to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today. And now, one more thing from the Post's Beijing correspondent, Anna Fifield. About her encounter with Chinese leader Xi Jinping's robot revolution. Recently, I was staying in a, you know, very normal hotel in the middle of Shanghai. And when I checked in at a reception, the receptionist told me that if I needed anything, I could just call the robot. The next morning in my hotel room, I discovered the coffee pods that were left there were decaf. And, you know, I don't drink decaf. I need the real caf. So I called on the phone for coffee pods. And maybe five minutes later, I got a phone call on my phone telling me in Chinese, then in English, that the robot was waiting at the door for me. Good morning, robot. Okay. Now what do I do? And the robot's like chattering away to me in Chinese the whole time. Saying, you're the most adorable person in the whole world. Would you like to take a selfie with me? So I shared the video on Twitter and I was not prepared for how popular it was. You know, within maybe 24 hours, it had been viewed more than a million times. Robots are 
becoming more commonplace in China. Xi Jinping has really tried to upgrade China's economy by putting a real focus on technology, advanced, uh, you know, systems, making China into a, you know, higher value economy. And a big part of that has to do with artificial intelligence and robots. So Xi Jinping has talked about wanting to oversee a robot revolution in China. I wouldn't say that the robot revolution has come to fruition, but I certainly encounter a lot more robots in the course of my daily life. But it still is very much a novelty. The technology, the artificial intelligence that we encounter here on a much more regular basis is not cute and endearing. It is the kind of facial recognition technology, the AI technology that enables the government's huge surveillance apparatus to monitor people at all times. So there is definitely a very dark side, uh, alarming side to this technological revolution that's taking place in China and certainly something that I try to go out of my way to avoid or circumvent as opposed to calling a robot to my hotel room. Anna Fifield covers China for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Today is the one-year anniversary of Post Reports. I just want to say, on behalf of our whole team, how grateful we are to all the people who've listened to the podcast and made it part of their daily routine. We are truly honored. And if you want to see some photos from what's been going on behind the scenes for the past year, join our Facebook group. You can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash post reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today.